welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back. Another Knock On Podcast. Uh, I just showed my buddy Andy Stumpf here my piezo. <laughs> First time I've ever seen another man's piezo. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's my podcast app. It's uh, I have no idea how I even got it. I just know that's how I've got it, and that's what I roll with. So we're uh, two guys that podcast two different ways, and they're they're both beautiful. Good. I agree. I'm going to be researching this app a little bit later. Dude, it's pretty surreal having you here, not going to lie, because I'm a, I was never military, but it's almost one of the, it's one of the things that I really look back and think, I almost feel like that would have been something that would have been, that would have fit my personality. From what I know of you and spending the last day and a half with you, uh, your attention to detail and the way that you are oriented, like we were talking about earlier today, being task, because I'm the same way when you were talking about, I describe it as struggling with idle time. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing you were talking about. I do great when it's like a stacked week or a stacked day, just boom, 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 boom. If you remove that from me, I go a little bit stir crazy inside of my own skin. But uh, the same things that make you good at archery and got you to where you are would serve you so well in the military. It's the same stuff just applied elsewhere. Yeah. Well... And I like that. It's funny because um, when Sharon and I were going through uh, immigration process for her, we, you know, you're not on your own schedule. You're on someone else's schedule. And it gets to the point where they kind of give you a heads up of, okay, pretty soon you're going to be forced with having to move from England within 30 days. It might have been 60, but it was like 30 or 60 days. And then once you're in the U.S., you have... I think 60 days or so to actually marry. So we were on this like standby pattern. Like a two month or. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, it was a nine month window of having two months to like move out of a house, move the country, like move (laughs) and then move back. You know, it was this deal. So I was in this, this pattern of just flying, literally flying circles around England where I'd be there 30 days and I'd be home home 30 they're 30 home 30 and it got really difficult because i couldn't really plan events either i couldn't plan tournaments because i couldn't commit to them in case they said in case you got the call yeah in case you get the call so it was like arguably one of the most miserable times for me because i did not have anything to like prep for i had nothing to i had no tournaments to plan for i didn't have like of like things with work that were deadlines or a ata show coming up or dealer school or you know i didn't have any of that and i was like going crazy and finally i was at um i was at this local it was kind of their version of a ymca and i saw a little poster for like a half triathlon and i'm like okay i have no interest to do one of these but Something to plan yeah. for. Yeah. So I just, I literally 
kind of grabbed the little ticket, came back and told Sharon, and uh, I went and bought a bike off a guy at a garage sale, and just, I'm not kidding, <laughs> I'm not kidding, and I just started, I would literally ride, run, and then um, I would go into this, uh, go into this like YMCA and jump in the pool and then try to swim, and that it was actually there that I realized I'm probably not going to be able to do this thing because I'm not like I, I could swim. There's a difference between knowing how to swim for survival and how to swim. Like, you know, there's a difference. So I actually hired this swim coach to just watch me swim. And she was amazing. Literally in like two laps, she was just like I am with archery just identified all these inefficiencies of she's like you know you're almost she said structurally you will be a, an awesome swimmer because of your size and yeah, your you're limbs for it. but she said you're like because you don't know what you're doing you're structurally inefficient right now and you're, <laughs> i was kind of like spazzing out so literally just putting me on a, a foam board teaching me how to breathe like blow bubbles turn my head just doing that like in a stationary position and then teaching me stroke then teaching me how to guard yep. you know for my breath and then and then just she taught me cadence just count for you know for stroke so instead of me thinking how much further to the end of the pool all i was doing it went back to a task yeah it was one two three four breathe one two three four breathe little micro tasks yeah and it, and so i was just sitting there with this cadence and next thing i know it's like literally two or three breaths and you're at the wall you're going back whereas before it was like you know <laughs> freaking out to like try to get down there but water's a punishing environment and it's you can't muscle it i know if you try to muscle it you're it's not going to go well and you your body you mean you're a tall individual but you have to relax uh, yeah, it's it's an equalizer for sure. I've seen many interesting things occur in the water. There's a couple things that I'm like kind of geek out about. I really love the elements. Like, you know, you look at my tap, like this and this signifies water, right? And then I've got other things that signify sun. I think they're, I love like yin and yang. You know, it seems like the the goods and the bads are what make things balance. And for me, that's, you know, I needed task to balance the chaos in my mind. Like, even though my mind is chaotic, I need more to do so that it, like, plateaus out, levels out. It makes sense for me, at least. I'm the are same you the way. same? I'm the same way. I, I truly do struggle with idle time. If, if I'm left alone with too much time with just me... It'll come off the rails. <laughs> It'll come off the rails. Uh, I don't think I'll ever go postal, but I. It, it, but, and I'll dive into. Well, you better not go postal. No, I won't. It'd be awesome. I, it'd be. Awesome. I'd be good at it. I think. Can I have your bow? <laughs> <laughs> if you do, yeah. Because that thing shoots. It's a tack driver. Oh, that thing's so awesome, man. Uh, yeah, but I'll dive into reading. Or anything, writing, or anything to get a task in front of me to get it back. Because it, it, for me, it does. Even though there's like an inventory system in my head, and the more I have in there, the actually the better it works. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. Well, I loved... Uh, it was actually probably the funnest time I had in England because I was just 
every day I was doing these little things. And you know what was really cool about it was when you try something new, you see improvement instantly. If, yeah. And that was cool in itself. Like a lot of people that are out there and maybe you try an archery for the first time or people who are doing archery one way forever and they're afraid to try a new way. The, the thing is when you try something new, and this could be someone that's listening that has never worked out or never tried to run or never, I haven't actually gone to CrossFit. My buddy Tim and Samantha, <coughs> they really want me to go. I'm going to do it. I need to just do it because I like those guys, so I need to do it with them. But I think any- you would dig it. Just, you know, don't jump into the crazy pool. Yeah. Let's talk about the crazy pool. Yeah. That was I like that. We you and I discussed this a little bit. This is relative in a lot of different ways. But um you were just in Madison for CrossFit seminars. The CrossFit Games. The actual yearly competition. Was it this weekend? Yeah. It started it's now a week. It what what was once done on a Saturday and Sunday, I think they started doing them in two thousand and seven is now my gosh yeah the athletes i mean fly in on sunday or monday and they start doing stuff like tuesday one or they did a bicycle event this year with uh forget the name of it like a cycle cross you had to like take the bike and take it over obstacles and then hop back on they did a run swim run there's always going to be uh heavy things attached to a barbell and so it's i mean it's a huge for me it like i i love going there because it's some of the I know what it takes for them and what their what their life looks like to achieve that level and it's it's crazy inspirational and aspirational. Yeah. I leave that place I'm like, okay. I got my motivation dialed for a month. But then to the crazy point, yeah. Not everybody actually almost everybody should not do that with their life because it's like uh you know, looking at the number of people who play in the NFL and then the number of people who play high school football. Yep. You know, it, it tears up and it apexes. And I found CrossFit in 2005 and I still use the methodology, but I apply it to enhance my life. And I refuse to let it take a position where I surrender quality of life choices so I can get better at exercise. Yeah. I just want to work out. Like for the last few months, all I'm thinking about when I'm working out is like I'm hiking uphill because I want to see a massive rack on the other side of the hill. That's literally <laughs> all I think about. I'm like, okay. This sucks, but I'm gonna do this because when that comes, like I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be at my A game, and that's that's all I care about. So it yep. enhances my life, and I see people who get a little bit too deep in it, and they see that the competition, and they want to train like those people, even though I don't want to say they have a mundane job, but they have a job that doesn't require that level of fitness, and then they start skipping vacations, they stop hanging out with friends, and it just just don't take it that far. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, some people need that. I mean, there are people where, I mean, that's their personality, man. I I mean, I knew a guy that on a weekend is, like, his idea of fun, he'd have a bunch of, like, CrossFit dudes come over and they'd, like, pull pull the grill out in the front yard and do, like, grill jumps. (laughs) Be jumping over the freaking grill onto the back of the pickup truck. Yeah. And, like, for them, but I would way rather them do that than be out, uh... You know, there's a hundred other things that would be way worse for society. But I really respect those people. And, I mean, there's so many super hardcore athletes that have not a drop, nor do they want it, a drop of credit within our realm. 
Um, I always have a hard time going places and doing hunting seminars. Hmm. This might sound weird, um, but I have a hard time doing it because I know there's probably three or four people in that room that have even accomplished more than I have from a hunting standpoint or probably have way bigger animals. And they're just not the person that's in front of someone. But when it comes to them as a hunter, you know, I think of like my uncle, amazing hunter. Um, You know, I look at someone like, you know, Jared Lyle is a a buddy of mine from Montana that uh, I've known a long, long time. He's just this ruthless killer. He's like one of the guys. They're out there getting it. I've always said there's, there's, um, and I was, I was actually, um, do you know Remy Warren? Uh, I've met him one time. Don't, I mean, I know who he is. Don't know him at all. Well, Remy and I were talking and he was, um, he was talking to me about a few things and asking me about maybe some changes that he wants to make, um, in his equipment. And I just told him, I said, man, you're one of a very, very short list of people that I consider killers. Like, I think there's hunters and there's killers. And Remy's definitely one of those guys that, you know, if there's six people in camp, he's going to be one. I mean, if if three guys are the only three that shoot something, he's going to be one of those three guys. And, I mean, and there's always, you know, there's it's a short list, but there's, there's guys that are different that way. Um but it's, I don't know. I, I respect those types of people. And one of my buddies, um, Brendan Hansen, who's swam in the Olympics, he's been on my podcast before. He's got a very, very nice uh, swimming coaching place down in Austin, right next to Yeti. And uh, they he's got just the most unbelievable staff that are so dedicated to, to coaching people. And this one lady, I can't think of her name, she shoots a bow. She came over when we were coaching guys at, uh, or people at Yeti. She came over because she wanted to shoot, and she brought her bow over. But she was she was one of these, like, CrossFit triathlon people. And, dude, I mean, she was a freaking tank. I'm talking every knuckle was ready for arthritis. <laughs> And she didn't even bat an eye about it. I mean, and the thing is, like, she's like, hey, can you show, give me some pointers with a bow? So I was, like, talking to her. And, I mean, those types of people, it just goes in and they're processing it and they immediately put it to work. Especially when you talk about, like, strictness of form because those types of people have learned. Well, they're Olympic lifting and and they're, they're operating near their margins. So for them... Uh, a 1% change in technique might net a double digit change in performance mm-hmm. and that's that's what they care about. Yeah. It doesn't yet the high level apex athletes especially those ones like the cross of people who are super physical, I've never seen people who are able to take on tactile feedback faster. Mm-hmm. Say one time and like it's immediately their new baseline standards like whoa. It's yeah. impressive to watch. Yeah, if people could apply that same mentality to archery, you would be leaps and bounds um well we talked about some stuff that we like so we might as well talk about <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> we might as well loaded up with some archery questions yeah so we we've had um for those of you listening to the podcast we had, obviously andy came by we did a full bow build this morning uh gutted his bow did a full build build i actually adjusted the draw length a little bit based off um some 
pictures that I had them send me ahead of time and um, pretty much walked you through a whole bow build and yep. the detail that I put into it. And then, then the arrows. Yep. Yeah. And then you learn, taught you how to how to build your own arrows, which is important. I mean, I'll gladly build them, but I still like the fact that if you were on a hunt somewhere and something happened, you could probably like Amazon a jig to yourself and like make it happen. You know, that's critical. My rule in my old job was I never left with a piece of gear that I didn't know how to use. And yep. I knew how to use it, but I also knew how to fix it and I had an understanding of how it worked. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to archery stuff, I'm... I now I was like, okay, this is a little eye opening. There's maybe a little bit more to this than when you go to the store, the guy hands it to you and you go shoot it. <laughs> it was. Uh, I'm really glad that I got to see all of those stages, and I think it gives you, for me, a better understanding of what you're saying when you're giving me the feedback on the shooting. I have a better understanding of what's going on with the bow and how I'm interacting with it. Yep. So all of that combined was it was for me super helpful. Yeah. Well, question one is from uh, Matt Jones. And he's uh, asking for tips on keeping the front show, uh, front show, front shoulder low during the um, the draw and the shot. Um, so this was one thing you and I talked I was about. Say, <laughs> cover so, that today. So what did you? I'll let you do this one. So what did you learn? I mean, put it put it in terms of someone that you had that your shoulder crept some. Yep. And so we talked about the different aspects. <coughs> What can help you with that? So, I mean, what did you pull out of it? So, it, I mean, for me, it was the the initial setup, right? I was starting up high and pulling and bringing it down in, bringing my shoulder down, which was allowing it to come back, and really pushing out into it. Yeah. And then you had me start with my arm down, bring it up while it's extended, and then just pull back. Which, And the second that I did that, I realized that my shoulder was... It stayed where it started, and yep. it started in the right position. Mm-hmm. Instead of coming down or coming up, literally straight out there, I'm pulling, I'm stacking You know the joints. I was working on the elbow like you were saying, because at first, the classic guy thing, I'll just go harder. <laughs> if I just push harder. Death grip. So back that off a little bit, but, but I was able to back it off because I had my shoulder in the right position to start with, and my initial pull of the draw was right back into that. So it, to me, it felt like it was just setting the shoulder in place. Because it was starting in the right place. Yep. Well, and it was that super small, just start low, you know, and, and and then just bring it up and then pull into it. It was huge. Yeah. So much of my coaching aspect is very simplistic. Um, and really what I'm looking for is I really like to rely on bone structure and anatomy more than strength and like trying to strong arm something. So one thing that people do that doesn't allow their shoulder to really be where it needs to is if you get in the habit of putting your bow above the target and pushing and pulling at the same time because when you do that you load the front shoulder and it's going to creep up as you're trying to thrust forward and then once you do that it's very difficult to actually drop that thing back down because you've already put load on it So the best thing to do is to take your bow when it's at your side, keep your arms straight, raise your bow straight to the target so that you're more or less forming half of a T. And in that position, your shoulder is down. It's in the correct place. And it's just, again, just your arms at your side, raise it straight up, point the bow at the target, and then pull the string back to your face instead of trying to push and pull at the same time. 
Um, and then obviously draw length can make your shoulder uh, be in an incorrect position pretty fast. So, you know, you need to have your bow at a length to where you're able to have expansion. In other words, you're able to have your chest broad and your shoulders, you know, that front scapula and shoulder down and forward. Whereas if your bow's too short, your scapula are going to compress together uh, towards your spine. And, you know, you're literally shortening yourself. You're not in the recurve world. They talk about it as expansion, chest expansion. You can be small or you can also be broad. I mean, I'm sure like when they tell you guys stand at attention, you know, if you stand and your shoulders are all stuck together, you know, probably I don't think that'd be good. They give you some tactile feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you lengthened my draw a, a tad, didn't you? Yes. Because it felt it today like the everything when I got to that right spot. And you well, say, you know what? I actually shortened your string. Really? Yep. I shortened your string, lengthened your loop. But then for you, you know what made everything feel different was when I told you to straighten your hand. That was huge. Because that was huge. That's and I could feel three it. quarters of an inch yeah. to an inch, right? Yeah. Um, so one thing Andy was doing was he was almost like half fisting. I call the it white knuckling. It's no big deal. Yeah, just hanging on for dear he life. Kind of gave a little <laughs> bit of a white knuckle fist. So and that's why having your hand flat when you grab the release aid is so important because your draw length is consistent. As soon as you start to make a fist, or if sometimes if you get tight during a tournament and you go deep into the release with your hand and you make a fist, when you draw back, all of a sudden you're going to feel the knuckles on the side of your cheek. It's not going to feel normal. So then what people do is they collapse the front shoulder to oh get boy. that anchor back. Whereas if the hand was flat, you could almost bring that shoulder even out further um, in order to come into the draw length. So... Hopefully that helps you, dude, and uh, appreciate you. Help me. It's huge. Yeah, appreciate you sending the, the message in. The next one is uh, the wrench head. Um, thoughts on the DFX turbo cam. Uh, so the the DFX turbo is uh, a Hoyt model like ours, but it's a mm-hmm. turbo model, so it's got more speed. Here's my deal with the turbo models. I'm not a fan of the turbo models. I'm not a fan of cams that have aggression i'm a big fan of control and you know as much as i like you know as much as i would like well it's like this i wanted to take my jeep and put a lift kit on it and put 35s on it that was cool until i drove it down the road (laughs) it looked great in the garage yeah (laughs) then i realized oh shit this thing is all over the place so you know i ended up having to get a bunch of like stabilizer bars and stuff put on to where obviously I tightened up the whole system. The same is true with cams. If you're worried about the cam taking the string away from you, then you already have tension. And that's what that's what's going to happen because with those turbo type cams or the turbo bows, one, you've got a short brace height, which isn't, you know, if the brace height is short, you're more likely to hit your sleeve. You're more likely to contact your arm. And the bottom line is if you're a hunter, at some point, you're going to be hunting in a hunting jacket, and clearance is critical. The other thing is, the longer the the arrow is on the string, the more opportunity there is for you to make a mistake. So with those short brace height bows, when the arrow is on the string longer, it gives you more opportunity to, to screw up. 
And again, like I said, I want a system that lets you be that lets you shoot relaxed. When you're tense and when you're having to like really reef on the back of that to keep it from going forward, um, a lot of times I see a lot more people like start to squint or flinch their eyes when the shot happens because there's so much tension in their they're just fighting it the whole time. Yeah, yeah. They're worried about what the bow can do instead of, you know, you don't, you just, you don't want that. You know, you don't want something that's, you know, more gun than you can cont- control or more car or more bow. You want something that's, honestly, you want something that's just efficient and easy to shoot. And I just, I feel like if you just get a 31 inch model, uh, just like what Annie's got, you know, there's, Really, there's for a hunting aspect, the Easton six millimeter uh, axis, or a full metal jacket arrow, just a regular Easton FMJ. Those are two dynamite setups, and uh, it's just not worth six, eight feet per second. You know, it's hard to say what your real speed change would be, but having something that is that demanding um i don't like anything that's demanding when i'm in when i'm in the field i would want something that enhances my confidence that i'm not worried about why do people get the turbo bows what what drives them speed just arrow speed yeah i mean that's why the names even speed and the thing is like if people have shorter draw lengths um like i mean if you're a 26 or 27 inch draw length those speed bows can help you because you know they're they're at a disadvantage already because of their draw length. So, you know, there's kind of this fine line there. Now, like if Sharon or Harry wanted to shoot a turbo and their draw length is only, you know, 26 inches, at that point their arrow is not on the string very long. The bow is probably more sizable for them. It's probably actually a better fit size for them. Um, so that starts to change things. But if your draw length is 28 or longer, I would just say, man, for that small variance in speed, uh, just suck it up. I mean, it's not going to be that much difference on your scale, on your bow. You know, you're probably talking maybe a difference of two yards or something at 50. It's just not a lot. Um, if you're worried about speed, then I would just say go with a, with a lighter arrow. You could switch to like an Easton Hex. Um, which is a, a very light arrow. Um, you can get an arrow that's under 400 grains with a good FOC. You could put brass in the front of it um, to have a high FOC, but your overall arrow weight's still going to be, you know, lower. Or you know, if you can do it, man, shoot shoot three to four more pounds, and uh, and shoot a bow that's forgiving. And you're going to be a hundred times more comfortable. And I don't know if um, if you've heard the podcast I did about uh, where I don't know if it was a podcast. It might have been a actually it might be in the in a Peterson's article that uh, I talked about a buck that came in and I was shooting this. It was a PSE G Force. That thing was so freaking hard to pull, like one of the very first ones, and I bought it at 80 pounds because I was trying to be cool. I wanted speed, had a crazy fast, crazy light arrow, and you know, super short brace height. Things sound like a 22 going off, <laughs> and I was, I had, 
I waited all year, finally had a buck come underneath me, and I freaking pulled on that string, and I swear, if, if, if I could have bet on it, I would have said someone had zip-stripped the strings together because there was no way to possibly get that string to budge. <laughs> get it. And it was because I was nervous. And when that buck finally walked away, I'm like, what is the hell? What the hell's wrong with this thing? And I just grabbed it and freaking pulled it back so easy. And it was because I had so much, I had buck fever. I mean, I was young. I experienced buck fever for the first time. And because I was trying to push myself at that 90% max of what I could control in in a (laughs) high-pressure situation... Uh, it totally just backfired on me and, and cost me an opportunity. Yeah, be comfortable with your gear. Yeah, you want gear to be nice to you. Let's see, how would you, this is from Halon 8569, how would you hunt whitetail early season before the bucks break up from their groups and change patterns? Well, I would hunt them where the groups are and I would find out the pattern (laughs) like that that the best part about early season is that there is pattern and the pattern is going to be most likely food or depending on the type of heat water is also super um, resourceful Um, and you know again if you want to be successful early season, which in Wisconsin where I used to live, I only had 10 acres of land and I killed a Pope and young deer there every single year on 10 acres. And it was because I did homework. Um, I would always have the type of food that they like early season, which is alfalfa, red clover, or two dynamite ones. Or if it was a hot year, I always... I would carry in water. Um, you can bear, you can buy a plastic pool at Walmart um, for about twenty bucks. Dig a hole, put the plastic pool in there, and then just haul in fresh water. Take a stick, put a stick in the water, going out to a limb that's outside of the edge of the pool, and that way, if any rascals or birds fall in, they can get on that log and escape, so that you're not like soiling your water and um honestly i've killed several bucks over water tanks that i that i carried water in so that thought about that that's uh insane yeah yeah that's a a very ingenuitive idea and uh the other thing too is game cameras i'm like i'm a big advocate of um stealth cams i actually got some of these new 4k ones they do 4k video and uh actually cullen just told me he said I just had him pull the cards, and he told me, he's like, dude, you won't believe some of the video that we got, like the interaction between Bachelor Group bucks. Um, I haven't got to see it yet, but I guess it's really awesome. But game cameras, figure out whether they need green or water, and then find that pattern. And lastly, be cautious about um, how much you actually imprint on those deers, you know, Parking up and watching them from 100 yards off with a spotting scope in the truck is going to be enough over a few days to change that pattern. Um, Get as far as you can away so that all you're doing is confirming location. You don't, you're not, you're not like watching, you're not nature watching 
just literally confirm locations and whatever you do, if you're fairly certain on their location, it's probably not a good opportunity to use a game camera right on that environment because that means you're going to have to go there to pull that card and make those checks. You're better off using your game cameras as a resource to try to pattern where they're leaving that, where they leave that, and where they're going to. It'd be better to maybe find where that bedding is so that you have the morning opportunity to get them coming back from that pattern, uh, which can be just as effective as knowing the evening pattern. Yeah, that makes sense. Good with that? I'm taking mental notes, man. Okay, CPavy89 saying, how do you set your bits and burger for the perfect offset for all arrow shafts? Um, from hunting to target veins, blah, blah, blah. Straight clamp or right helical? Really, either of those two are awesome. You learned to fletch arrows today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the knock-on wrap pad, have you seen one of these wrap pads? Yeah, we did it on a wrap pad. You did? Yeah. Um, what's cool about the wrap pads, <coughs> and these, these in here... These in here are like prototypes. Uh, so just hit something. But what's cool is yep, um, exactly you see where is. I put the degree of offset? Yeah. So I marked. So if you take your jig and you do like a just a test, test fletch, you can kind of take your arrow and just line it up and kind of get an idea of what one degree, two degree, or three degree is. The degree of offset that I shoot is really based on two things. One um, is always going to be clearance. Um, and then two is going to be distance. So in the situation where I'm shooting my target arrows, my very small, like super small diameter target arrows, in order to keep the base of the vein contacted correctly on the contour of that shaft, I really can't go more than about a two degree offset. Um, and then what I found is the more offset you have, like especially if you're looking at like a target arrow um, with that shorter vein, the faster you make it spin, the more drag you create. It's good because that that drag trans, translates into steering. So it is steering. The problem is accuracy is based off a projectile maintaining velocity for the longest period of time between point a and point b that ballistic coefficient between those distances the more efficient it is the more accurate it will be the faster it decelerates then the faster it starts to actually just start to get a mind of its own so having a very strong helical or offset if you're wanting to do long distance stuff um it's going to spin so fast to where eventually once it gets out there, it's going to start to decelerate because it's, you know, it's generating so much, you know, pretty much so much air, air friction as it's rotating. Right. So, um, in my long range stuff, I have less offset or less helical so that I can maintain control, but less rotation. But the reason that works with target archery is because with a target archer or a target arrow, I have the ability to put a a lot of point weight in the front of the arrow, and I'm allowed to shoot um, a very high FOC front of center. Speed doesn't matter. I'm shooting a shorter vein, and I'm also um, allowing the point to lead, which in a hunting situation 
uh, unless your broadhead design is great, letting the point lead can get you into trouble because now the point, the broadhead, the blades, the broadhead design, the alignment of the blades in the ferrule, how one blade is in one arrow versus how a blade's in the other arrow, how the blades are indexed in relation to where your fletchings are, all those start to cause variances and they can they can uh, they can cause changes in pretty much in flight and accuracy. So for a hunting arrow, I do like to have a lot of spin. Um, I like to have rotation. So like for your hunting arrows, we're shooting a three inch vein mm-hmm. uh, with a, about a three degree, two and a half to three degree offset. And, you know, out to about a hundred, it's, it's good. And you're, you know, you will have some wind drift. You will have to learn that a little bit, um, you know, compared to if you were just shooting a field point with a short two inch vein. Uh, but, Overall, it's a really good balance. And like I said, um, when it comes to offset or helical, clearance is definitely a key factor. If you're not shooting a fallaway rest to where you can have really any type of fletching configuration you want, then um, you really have to pay attention to that. Now, Sharon's arrows that we built, they're pretty (laughs) dynamite. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they look awesome flying. Sharon's going to be shooting a muzzy trocar, and she's shooting an Axis 600. And we actually built, uh, the arrow that I really like for her is um, a six fletch with a Pro Max vein. So it's a short little, it's a it's short two inch vein um, with kind of a medium profile. But what we did was we fletched it three times like normal, and then without moving the jig, you take the arrow out of the jig, rotate it 180 degrees, put it back in, and then just fletch three times again, and you'll create a full six fletch. Uh, We went with a shorter vein, but more of them. Um, So when she shoots, she's going to have a little bit less left to right wind uh, drift, but she's going to be able to shoot that small, compact uh, broadhead, fixed blade broadhead and have great control even with the short vein so it's a a pretty awesome setup too and if you're shooting expandables that's something that you may want to consider trying is uh try a six fletch on the max pro veins uh it's it's a really cool setup dynamite they fly really good but as long as you've got clearance then Really, it's up to whatever projectile you're shooting. For target, you can get away with less. For hunting, you'll need more if you are shooting a fixed blade head. And the bigger the head, the more steering that you're going to need. The more offset, the more helical, the longer the fletch. So that's why I'm a big fan of short compact heads. And I'm also a big fan of uh, Rage Tripans. Is that the broadhead you were telling or the expandable you were telling mm-hmm. me about? Yeah, they're dynamite. Um, let's see. Cheddar Fetter, he uh, wanted anything whitetails. Anything and everything whitetails. We covered some <laughs> whitetail stuff. So, dude, I think you got a little taste of that. Um, we did talk some whitetail strategies um, on Andy's podcast today, yep. too, which there's some very... For those of you listening, check out Andy's podcast. It's called Cleared Hot. It's my favorite radio call. Yeah, it's my favorite now, too. <laughs> All hell I actually, breaks loose right after that. Now that I'm listening to your podcast, there's been a few mornings where I've like lit some sp- smoke bombs. 
and just like thrown them out like to the left of my 3D targets so I could pee. Green smoke, green smoke, right at target. Cleared hot. And that's an actual, Arrow. that's a radio call from <laughs> Afghanistan. And that guy was, when they started calling in danger close, every ordinance has an acceptable proximity. That It's actually a much longer radio call. I took the pieces out that yeah, I liked. I believe it. Because they had to talk in and you visually confirm. And then the guy rolls in. He passed his initials because you have to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. The person on the ground who says cleared hot is the one that... Uh, He's owning up. You own it. You own yeah. what comes off the aircraft, even though the aircraft is flying it. But yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good radio call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll send good. you the full length. I think it's a two minute conversation. It's it's solid. Yeah, I, I want to hear that. But yeah, anyway, I've been. Uh, I go out in the morning right at first light, and uh, I throw throw smoke bombs out in the yard and then shoot. <laughs> But anyway, on his podcast, Cleared Hot, we actually talk a lot about um, relative points between things that he learned in the military for sneakiness and stealth and the ability and how that relates to spot and stalk. And then also talk some uh, hunting practicality yeah. as well. So, and um, advice for people starting off yep. with the same, same position I'm in. You just put out podcast eight. I'm Correct. podcast nine. You will be podcast nine, yes. That's pretty cool. It'll be next Monday. That's pretty cool. So you're, you're, well, yeah. I mean, I guess ten would have been cool because that's perfect archery score. All right, I got another one recorded. You'll be ten now. Yes, do it. <laughs> I, I already have one in the can. Yeah. Okay. From Let's a CrossFit that. guy. Uh, yeah. So anyway, right, you'll be ten. Okay. Anyway, it'll be a little while before it's out, but I'll be ten. I, that's that. There's reason behind that. I like it. Um, and you were SEALs Team 5? I started at 5, then went to the East Coast and finished off at 3. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. So is, um, I, was was Odd, is Odd West Coast? And odd even? is West. So 1, 3, 5, 7 are on the West Coast. 2, 4, 8, and uh, 10 are on the East Coast. Okay. Yep. That's all, that's all really all it is. And when they created it, they just wanted to keep track of where people were. Yeah. Oh. There's rhyme and reason for everything. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, just looking through here. Um, do you create the pulling motion in the shot by pulling with your back, rhomboid or scapula, or by physically pulling the elbow back? Can never seem to get a clear answer in your videos. God dang me. Can't believe I haven't been clear in these videos. He's coming at you hot right there. He did. This is Jimbo <laughs> Crawford. Jim, Jimbo, thanks for saying it how it is, brother. Andy, I think you can take this one, dude. I mean, today you helped me, right, by going back there and saying pull towards the sound of my voice. For me, yeah. that one was huge. It gave me the angle. It's I don't feel like I'm pulling with my elbow, though. I'm feeling. I'm trying to feel the tension with... I'll probably mess up the... Mo- Is it the rhomboid? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just kind of like you said, because you touched it and you felt the tension and you're like, yep, right there. And I just... I guess I'm moving my elbow, but I'm trying to do it by just applying the back pressure through that muscle. Yep. I'm not like I'm not really chicken winging or anything like that. I'm just trying to move it. I'm actually trying to keep it still and get it going in the right direction. Yep. With that muscle in my back. Yeah, and I see. I like to draw attention away from the hand and further away, which is why I try to give a visual focus of you know. I try to bring visual attention to the tip of the elbow. And then, you know, I talk to people about trying, if you imagine 
the tip of your elbow is probably sitting at about 11.30 or 12 o'clock on a clock, depending on how your draw length set, you're essentially pulling that elbow almost back towards like one o'clock, like the tip of the one. And if you do that, and if you think about that elbow pulling to there, you're naturally going to use the correct muscle to make that happen. When you start to lose attention to that, then what happens is you start to focus on more pull or making a fist with a hand. And, you know, if your attention is, if your attention to what you're doing is more on your anchor point and how you're pulling on the release, or if your attention is on um, how much pressure you've applied to the release or how much your triggers moved or how much you've rotated your release, any of that stuff, your attention's in the wrong spot because you're not going to have any um, any concentration on your back muscles if your focus is on the front, you know, your hand on the front of your face. So elbow tip, going back to the wall at one o'clock is going to naturally engage those. If the elbow is lifted and your um, elbow position is correct, the tension should be in the rhomboids, which is above the center line of your rear scapula. If you feel tension or the ability to pull beneath that where you're actually starting to engage your lats, then you're starting to pull the tip of that elbow down. You're almost coming down off the numbers of that clock, and that motion there can get you in trouble. So I found it. Uh, I would feel a huge difference when I had my let my elbow drop. Mm-hmm. It would. It was almost to that point where you're like, I'm pulling, I'm pulling, nothing's happening, and then when I got it back up, it would just it just was much cleaner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once the sh- once the release breaks, um, you're able to come through the shot better too, which is really important. The finish is is just as important as the shot like yep. the actual break of the release um okay so the next question is from adam garman 11 saying how much preload uh do you put on the trigger i found myself placing variable pressure on it and he's talking about a knock to it but this is actually relevant to eat any and in all releases <clears throat> so the the preload or sometimes i refer to it as like you know, you check in on the cams. I call mm-hmm. that checking in. Preload is tension load or trigger load. Um, really learning that, that right there comes from repetition. And when we talk about like blank bail shooting or just close practice shooting, that's where you're going to learn that d- small detail. You're talking about basically just... How much pressure you put on the trigger before you start that motion. I have a knock to it and I play with that, with that quite a bit too and I found it was easier for me and I don't know if it's right I put it in a position where if I applied any more the naturally being there if I applied any more pressure it would go off but then I didn't feel like I had to hold it because I could just focus on pulling back and yep. it, it would go with it yeah that is where you want it like you want I've talked a lot about thumb position and where that should be set on the knock to it um, but really with any release learning preload on the trigger there's there's a tool that you can use that's really good for this and i've said this on the previous podcast um my most productive year as a target archer was actually during a year that i didn't shoot as many arrows as the year previously the one the year previously i had shot a considerable amount 
But then as I um, got deeper into international shooting, my time at home was focused more on like I was really having to cram. So if I was in the office, you know, I was having to pull these 12, 14 hour days in the office so that I could then jump on a plane on the Thursday. You know, I'd have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in the office. Then Thursday, I'd have to be on a plane so that Friday I could be shooting in Poland or something. So I had to practice with a string and the release and learning just this while I was on the phone. I would have my headset on and I would just pull back with the string, put my finger (laughs) on the trigger and just learn like I would apply pressure on the trigger, kind of move my thumb around and I would find the spot to where when I started to pull the elbow back a little bit, it would fire. And because you're using a string, you actually feel pressure in the front bow hand because you can feel the pressure of that compressing against you where sometimes you really don't feel that with a compound bow. Um, it it kind of had double feedback. I learned how much I was actually pulling the elbow back because I could feel that pressure with the string on the front hand. Um, and then I was really able to learn how much I could touch my thumb trigger, how much I could move my thumb around. And one thing that I learned from uh, Jerry Carter years ago was, you know, he kind of caught me, you know, he called it waggling on the trigger. And it's a lot like a golfer who when, you know, they start to develop this habit of going to the tee box, addressing the ball, and they're like moving this club like... Intricate habits. Yeah, around, instead of just (laughs) coming down to the ball and focusing on like technique and form... They're like waggling it all around to where then all of a sudden, like when the time's right, they go back and they hit it. And he's like, that's what you're doing. He goes, your finger is like pushing on the trigger. It's coming off. It's like moving around. And he's like, it seems like you're just trying to get comfortable, like where it feels right. And I said, well, yeah, I'm looking for that perfect uh, mating point. Yeah. But what happened was I started doing it so much that I wasn't actually... It just got to the point where it's not like I was just trying to find the place. It was just a habit of kind of moving my thumb around and not really doing anything. It just became like this habit and it wasn't effective and it was, uh, it ended up causing inconsistency. So then I just started working with that string, pull back, and the string isn't the best tool. There's a way better tool now. It's called the right release. Um, You can find the right release on Instagram. Um, my buddy Rob and Randy started this company and, um, it's super simple. Um, I actually take them with me to, um, all of my seminars and stuff and I give them to people to learn to shoot. And pretty much all you're doing is it's got, you know, yeah, it's got a a wooden grip and it's got the ability to adjust the parachute cord to a length to where you can simulate your draw length. And then as you put your thumb on that trigger and start to pull, um, it fires. So, you know, it's a great training tool. And that's how I learned uh, how to do that. And I think if you if you do it yourself as well, you're going to definitely prosper uh, rapidly by just learning that preload on the trigger 
is one of the very, very key points to, to mastering archery. It's very valid. And I, I wish we... Like, Same thing to mastering uh, precision rifle shooting yeah. too, dry firing. Learning... Really? Oh, we did so much dry firing. And like for pistols, it's so common to watch people, they'll, they'll slap the trigger down in anticipation and it goes down and to the left because they're driving oh, yeah. it down. Take all the bullets away and they sit there and especially on a... Uh, you know, a single action or a double action trigger. It's got different slack and different pull tension. Mm-hmm. And you just, when you present the pistol, especially when it's uh, in a double action mode, you're already applying pressure. You're rolling the hammer back, basically preloading it. And then right when you're on target, you can finish the squeeze off. Yeah. I mean, I've probably done a million reps of that with no round in the chamber. It's the and you just same. click. And then the same thing with sniper rifles that have very sensitive trigger. You have to get to a point where you have to rest your finger on it. And you have to learn how much you can rest yeah. it on there, because otherwise, boom! Like, oh, my bad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> all dry firing, all practice, not yeah. a round on the gun. Well, and that's you know what's important too is when people get in the habit of changing releases all the time. Um, that's kind of an expert thing, almost beyond expert. I mean, I can, I feel like I can grab different releases and I can dry fire it a few times. And think, okay, now I know how much preload I need this so I can do my normal shot. But most people that are continually changing releases, you never really learn how to truly master um, preload because you're changing so much that you don't give yourself time to 100% get comfortable to that thing where you know every single little detail about it. And a lot of the stuff that I shoot and that I don't change is because I I feel like I'm so comfortable with it that things happen uh, without me really having to think about them now. Versus if I changed, then I have to apply conscious thought to that detail, and I might need my conscious thought for something else. Yeah, it's so, going to impact your game for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say thanks to everyone who did these questions. Um, there's a ton of awesome ones. When we wrap this up, I want to let everyone know I'll uh, I'll do a few more podcasts this week and plug through the rest of these. Um, let's see. This could be a good one for you here. Well, th- there's two quick ones. We'll do these two quick ones. C. Willis 662 says, uh, perfect arrow weight for deer hunting. Uh Eastern and out west. I really like an arrow that's for sure over 450 grains. Uh, personally, I you know I like that for sure for medium game. Uh, closer to 500 is better for larger game. Um, but more importantly than that, depending on the poundage you shoot and the type of bow you shoot, I'm just a very big advocate of trying to find an arrow. That allows your speed to stay in that, you know, 275 to 285 range. And I feel like you're if you're within that range, um, the arrow's stable. It gives you an abundance of opportunities for different types of broadheads or fletching configurations. But once you break that speed barrier, um, things start to change pretty fast, um, even for me. So I really feel like if you can stay around that 450 to 500 grains um, would be great. If your bow's faster, going up in arrow weight um, is definitely the name of the game. Uh, 
but I just don't think that you going with a super fast arrow that's shooting 320 feet per second, I just don't think 320 feet per second is enough um, compared to like 285 to cause like the difference between an animal, like especially a string jumper, to not be hit ethically or ethically. I mean, that it sounds like a lot, but distance wise, that's... It's not. It's not that much. I mean, what's the kinetic difference? Well, the kinetic difference is a hundred percent going to be in the favor. Well, momentum difference is going to be in the favor of the heavier arrow. The kinetic, um, it'll depend because there's kind of a breaking point for kinetic energy. A fast arrow has a certain kinetic energy as long as that arrow is still fast. But then I found personally that it's somewhere around thirty-six yards that the actual tides will flip to where that fast arrow will no longer be equal to um, an arrow that, you know, that may be a a bit slower. So there's, Hmm. you know, you can take a really fast arrow and have, say you have a kinetic of energy of 80 out of the bow. Um, What I found is that that heavier arrow after about 36 yards, at least for, for like my types of numbers, um, that faster arrow doesn't have any benefit when it comes. It starts to lose its kinetic energy at a way faster rate as the as the arrow slows because it, it's obviously not maintaining speed. So everything's according to like ballistic drop, and I've got um, I've got a lot of a lot of data like this, um, but I really don't put it out there just because people continue to rip it off so yeah I that, would saw, be, that would be a good reason i saw an arrow out um or i saw an article out and i'm not gonna say who it's from but a guy wrote an article on something that is literally something i've been coaching forever but like these here are all these are all tests of like ballistic the ballistic drops i'm showing andy some tables and stuff that I've got. These are all different types of arrows. Mm-hmm. Speed out of bow and then speed at 90 meters. So obviously the flatter your line, the less... Um, the less... Less change. Yeah, the less change you're making from point A to point B. So the bigger your slope, the less efficient that arrow is. So even though you may have a very light arrow, like for example, this one here was very light... Obviously, the the fastest out of the bow, um, the actual slope of that um, is not near as good as an arrow that you know maybe only changes twenty feet per second versus thirty feet per second at the full uh, the full distance. Hmm. But yeah, then um, then we've got like uh, then I've got the same tables broken down to like actual wind drift for oh, wow. for you know for wind. 70 meters wind, you know, 0, 5, 10, 15 meters a second. So all that stuff's relative. Um, so I think if you stick with that arrow weight, you're going to be happy. Uh, and you're going to, it might be a little slower, but you're going to have better productivity out of that arrow. Uh, next question and... Last question for today, anyway, is from John Gary Armstrong. 
He's saying, can shooting after a hard workout or lifting lead to poor form or bad habits? I mean, if you go into it, I don't know. I'm going to let the expert. I could see both. I could see if your muscles were fatigued, it might lend you to stack the joints. <laughs> yeah. But I could also see if you're just overall in general tired, it just creating, putting you into a position where it would be easier to get into a bad position. Yep. Yeah. So... The one thing that's important is I try to recognize when I'm breaking down or making a mistake, and I try to avoid doing it twice. If you're putting yourself in a position to where you're actually imprinting negativity or imprinting habits that you don't really truly want to repeat, then that's not a wise choice for you. Um I'm a firm believer in if I'm practicing good and I'm shooting good, I shoot. If I'm not shooting good, then I try to find something else to do that's archery related. Um, But I would rather not reinforce negative habits because it may have taken me years to get out of a certain type of pattern or, you know, and, you know, it's just like, you know, it's, Put it this way: If you were, if you were a drinker, and it took you a long time before until you weren't drinking, is it wise that you hang out around bars? Probably not the best call. Probably not the best call. (laughs) So it's the same. If you know that once you get tired, your shoulder starts to collapse, or your follow through that's not good, or you feel like maybe because you're not holding steady, it plays on your mind, so you kind of start making the trigger happen as you're going by the bullseye. As soon as that's happening, that's an immediate indicator of nothing positive is coming out of this unless you're trying to actually build strength and stamina of just getting reps with your bow. But in that case, you're way better off if you're just like, hey, I need to shoot enough to where I'm not only able to shoot 20 arrows. Well, in that case, blank bailing um, is what you need to do to get those reps. The other thing, too, is you know, becoming a creature of habit and making a schedule for yourself, whether, you know, some people do really well working out in the morning. Some people look at me like I have a hole in my head when I tell them I like to work out in the morning. They're like, what? Honestly, when I wake up, I could work out within five minutes of waking up and I would probably be more efficient. Every hour that goes by that I'm awake and I'm not getting to the gym, I'm actually letting more stuff like lose my focus and intensity. Likewise, if I know I'm working out early in the gym, then that day is when I'm going to shoot in the evening, you know, or unless I'm just, if my workout day happens to be uh, running or cardio or bike, you know, there's nothing stopping me from doing that and then coming back and shooting. But if, you know, if you're, um, if you're a power lifter guy and it's like, you know, chest and back today, well, shoulder press and triceps, yeah, you got that shoulder chest tries. <laughs> Um, then yeah, it's, this is the day where you need to refletch those arrows, get your new knocks in, uh, retie that loop, uh, things like that. Or if you know that that, you know, today is the day where you've got back and, you know, buys or whatever, then 
if you know you're going to lift at night, then set that alarm, be up, make a cup of coffee. When that sun comes up, mm. go out and get your reps in. And then that way you can you can crush it as hard as you want to crush it at night during your workout, and you're not going to uh, have an effect by that. And I guess the next thing, well, the one thing I want to bring up that's kind of relative to this, you and I talked about it some, but I think it's probably the perfect thing to end on, was we talked about um, both of our feelings on overtraining. Yep. And... You know, I've got to the point where I work out to a level of where I feel like I'm I'm putting myself in the position that's making me at my best for what I'm training for. So, for example, like right now, I'm actually, my workouts are way more intuitive to me being ready for elk season. Um, so I'm actually doing a lot of, I'm doing a lot of biking, um, trying to do a lot of leg driving motion, um, you know, with continual load on my legs. And I'm not really doing much uh, with my upper body. I do enough to where I feel like I can stay balanced and my posture isn't like sucking back or rolling me forward. Um, But I'm not like, I honestly can't, I can't go and hit the gym hard every day and then. Not if you want to to peak, you know. Yeah. I mean, I feel, (coughs) I feel like, I honestly feel like, well, I told you, I, with my schedule this whole last month, I mean, it worked out perfect that we were able to hook up, but with my schedule this last month, I was like trying to squeeze in one good workout, like lifting workout, like per week somewhere. But then I was trying to just do like runs and stuff with Harry, just more or less to, to get my heart rate up and try to, yeah. And try to do that. And I was, uh, you know, just trying to, to do simple things like, not take the closest parking spot in a parking lot and just like, okay, how fast can I get in and out of the store? Like power walk this freaking shopping spree and just simple things like that. But yesterday, I mean, I lifted really hard and honestly, I I had probably only pushed weights four or five days in, I would guess a month. And I told you, I'm like, I don't, I know I don't look like I'm in my best shape, but damn, I was strong. Yeah. Because, I mean, I just, and I was in there, I'm like, wasn't even, didn't have any, like, vascular uh, dilation. I was, like, flat, but I just went in there, and I'm just like, Jesus. I just, like, I was just sitting there going with way more. Jack and steel around. Yeah. And I had, I was able to crank out, like, way more reps, and I really feel like, I feel like I grew during a break. Some of the worst times I've ever physically pre- performed is when I've trained too hard leading up to it. And yeah. you might like you might look uh, you might look mirror strong, but you get out the door and like my body would just fall apart. Yeah. Like, oh, I feel well, that's awesome. I feel my leg workout from a week ago, and it's preventing <laughs> me from. It's like it's. Uh, you know, I was thinking when you're talking about practice and stuff, I, a common thing I hear from people is uh, practice makes perfect. And it doesn't. It's yep. perfect practice makes perfect. And so... That's what I say, man. Yep. So you have to have good physical capacity and then overlay that with proper technique. Like, I want to practice like I'm actually going to shoot with the release I'm going to shoot and just get dialed in on that thing and not overtrain it. Because 
I, I guarantee you one of the easiest ways for me to start shooting a bow poorly would be to physically overdo it and put too much into mm-hmm. that. I'll perform way better if I can focus on the horizon and those the micro goals to get to that point as opposed to trying to jam it all into two weeks. Yeah, and that's why prepping now for elk season or deer, even deer season, like now's the time, people. Get out there, start doing these. If you haven't done much, go out and say, I want to shoot 30 arrows. And then two days later, say, okay, I'm going to shoot 35 and try to build it up to where... Honestly, if you can go out, you don't need a whole lot of time. If you're shooting 50 good quality arrows in an evening and you're focusing on shooting those 50 arrows as good as you can, you're light years ahead of someone that's shooting a couple hundred arrows a day that's that's doing it poorly and inefficiently and just, you know, I've, I don't like it when there's, I've got students that are like that. They have to know exactly how many arrows they need to shoot every day. And man... Huh. It seems like a weird metric. I would want to know how I'm shooting them. Yeah. Well, some people, they feel like all I want to, I want to, like, I just want to know how many arrows I need to shoot today. Well, I want you to shoot 100% of quality arrows. Like, I don't, I don't want to know the quantity. Yeah. You know, I want 100% quality on whether you told me you did 10. Yeah. Or whether you did 70. Now, if you have a tournament coming up and you know you got 144 arrows to shoot in a day, well... Maybe you probably need to, to make sure. Yeah, you need to make sure you're shooting 160 arrows a day yep. to make up for a couple practice ends and a couple times letting down in the wind, and uh, yeah, you got to prep for that. But if you're a if you're a hunter, man, getting up every morning, doing your workout, and learning to make one awesome freaking shot is almost more important than sitting yep. out there and shooting for an hour. Yeah. I agree. All right, dude. I got nothing to add on that. I think that was pretty good. Everyone, Andy's a stud. Make sure you follow him on uh, Instagram. He really enjoys social media posting. (laughs) That's one of my favorite hobbies and pastimes. I post once every other month. (laughs) Yeah. The thing is, your posts are cool. And, uh, yeah, your, your posts are awesome, dude. God dang, you did use the eagle, didn't you? Yep. Son of a gun. <laughs> I told you I was gonna. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is hilarious because uh God, that freedom blend looks awesome. Oh, it's dude. amazing. I'll have him send you some. Yeah. So uh Andy introduced me to Black Rifle Coffee and damn. They pe- don't suck. People I'm telling you what, these suckers I need some I need some of that black rifle to go in those little pods for my Nespresso. They make what? They make them, they come in, it looks like a, it's a cardboard ammo can. For Nespresso or for for Keurig? I can't answer that question. I'm okay, like, but you know what? It. I know the guy who can answer it. I'll put him in contact Well, I'll, with you. I'll buy a single cup Keurig if that's <laughs> what it's in. That'll be perfect. Um, but yeah, super cool picks. And Andy made a post a while ago. He just said, uh, God, where was it? Oh, yeah, you I made a cool it. post with uh, <laughs> your Black Rifle Coffee, your Seals mug, your podcast you just posted, and you said uh, the only thing missing is a bald eagle. And I was actually drinking a coffee <laughs> when you posted that. So how long did it take? I Like five minutes later, you sent that to me. I was like, damn. So five minutes later, <laughs> I actually photoshopped a kick-ass bald eagle uh, 
flying as a reflection in his uh, in his his uh, red iridium freaking snow goggles. Snow goggles. <laughs> so yeah, so he's uh, he's got all the elements he's ever wanted. But uh, God, I wish if it was easier to do those flying suits, man, I could be down with that. You would enjoy it. It does look, I mean, I want to do it just to hold the flag. That was one of the coolest jumps I've ever done. Splitting that flag at 130 miles an hour face first. (laughs) Dude. Oh, I'll show you the video. Yeah, please do. Uh, I actually got to do it on my phone. All right. People, he has got some super cool, (laughs) awesome stuff. And uh, your blog's legit, too. I, I had to start writing so I would stop arguing with people in Starbucks. <laughs> Where's Tell them where to get the blog. It's just confessionsofanidiot.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's the actual video. Oh, yeah. That's my POV. Holy <laughs> crap! <laughs> That's you flying past the... Yeah. So you can see it good at the beginning, too. You can see it, the suit. Actually, yeah, I play it. The flag folds up on itself from the wake from my suit. Oh my, it does. Look at the speed, dude. That's about as fast as I can get that suit going. There would be consequences if I drifted left or right. Yeah, dude, you would have took someone's leg off. Uh, Oh, yeah. I would have died. Yeah, you would have. The video would have been great. Yeah, you would have, but they would have too. (laughs) But anyway, follow Andy. Um, It is Andy Stump. So S T U M P F two one two, and that's it. So thanks everybody for tuning in. You're awesome, and um, thanks so much for the support, all that good stuff, spreading the word. And um, hey, as you say, make sure you um, leave a review on iTunes. Super important. I never thing. asked that. I, I think single biggest uh, feedback I ever got. Uh, who was t- I think Jocko was telling me about it or something like, hey, just. The reviews help. I don't know how they help necessarily, but yeah, I end every podcast with, hey, go write some reviews, please. Yeah, so give me a review, and hopefully it's uh, good. If not, then I'll, I'll take it in a good way. That's how I roll. So thanks, everybody. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com. <laughs>